We're thinking today about the burial of the Lord Jesus, thinking this morning about that, and then this evening looking at His resurrection. I was trying to count this up, but as a minister, I've probably been involved in more than 200 funerals in the last 20 or so years. And being there at the moment of someone's death or coming into a home and dealing with a family immediately after the death has taken place, it's a challenging thing. It's never easy. It's a privilege, but it needs grace, sensitivity, and gentleness. One of the things I have observed, and I'm sure many here have observed this also, is how people can react at death quite differently. It depends a lot in how someone dies, but even then, reactions can be different. Some are very traumatized. Others are very calm, some even very businesslike. Others are very caring and watchful for others. Others can just be very focused on themselves. And sadly, very occasionally, there are others who are already scheming, thinking about the will and what they think should be coming to them. And so, at death, there can be a great variety of responses. And at the death of Jesus, there are quite a variety of responses as well. And we're going to focus today on a few folk on how they respond to Jesus' death. And first of all, we see here is the hypocritical request in verse 31. Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, there's a real irony here. The Jews who had got Jesus, the Son of God, God's promised Messiah, the Jews who had got Him put to death do not want the Sabbath broken. It's against their Sabbath rules that dead bodies would be left on a cross into the Sabbath day. And so they come here and they ask that the legs would be broken, that the people would be dead on the crosses so that the Sabbath can be kept. So here we have people who have no time for God's Son, people who hated Jesus, and yet they want to be strict about keeping the law of God. And what we see here is a Christless religion, a religion which is never pretty, a religion in which Jesus has been left out. Paul speaks of those who have a form of godliness, but denying its power. Now, someone's Christianity, it can't be measured by religious duty. It can't be measured merely on outward activity or morality. What is vital is what is on the inside, what is inward. Inside us is there a love for Christ. Within us is there a passion for Jesus. In our hearts and our lives, is there a power of Christ 
which transforms us and continues to change us. True Christianity is not merely an outward religion. It is a religion of the heart, a heart that loves Jesus. Many years ago, there was a professor of divinity at Aberdeen University called Henry Skugel. You'll see his picture come up here. He died at the age of just 27, in the age of 1657. He wrote one book in his short life, and it's called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Very much about inward religion. And George Whitfield, who lived in the 1700s, he was sent a copy of this book by one of the Wesleys. And this is what he said, I never knew what true religion was until God sent me this excellent treatise. I never knew what true religion was until he read this book about the life of God in the soul of man. And the influence on Whitfield was amazing, so much so that the central cry of Whitfield's ministry was, you must be born again. You must be made alive on the inside. You must be changed within. And people said to Whitfield, why do you keep preaching? You must be born again. He says, it's simple, because you must. What are you like on the inside? In the heart, where are you? Last Sunday morning, I announced that last Sunday evening we would be speaking about the cross. I said we were going to do three things last Sunday night. We were going to sing about the cross. We are going to pray about the cross. We were going to study God's Word about the cross. And while I was saying that, you know, I was thinking, I didn't push, I didn't put any guilt trip on anyone. I was thinking, you know, this is going to be a real test of people. How many people are concerned about coming to do those three things? Now, I know a few people have genuine reasons why they couldn't be there last Sunday night, but there are many of you here this morning who chose not to be there. Could have been there, but chose not to be there to hear about the cross. You know, the sad thing is, if we had had a special choir, if we had a special visiting singer, probably would have been a lot more of you would have gone. Is the choir, a choir is a singer, more important than the cross? I'm not particularly worried about church attendance here. I'm wanting you to see this as a test. I'm wanting you to examine your soul. I want you to see, do you not have a desire to consider the cross? What does it say about the state of your soul? Where are you inside if you do not have a desire to come to sing, to pray? and study about the cross. We have to be so careful. 
that our religion is just, isn't just outward, isn't just formal. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verse 22, speaking about the day of judgment. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is speaking here not about people outside who never come near a church. Jesus is speaking here about people who profess the name of Jesus, who say they're Christians, who are very active in the church, very busy in the life of the church, doing some amazing things, casting out demons, prophesying, doing miracles even. And there are people who can be very busy doing so many active things who on the day of judgment will hear Jesus say, I never knew you. Depart from me. I remember preaching that sermon one time on that passage. It wasn't in a Presbyterian church. It was a different denomination. And the minister came to me afterwards, and he said, William, I don't think I'm born again. For me, that is the scariest passage in the Bible. But there are people here today who could be involved in leadership within this church, involved very heavily in service in this church. But one day we'll hear Jesus say, depart from me. I never knew you. Why? Because you have religion, you have duty, but you do not know Christ in your heart. You have not been born again. We need to examine ourselves. Truly, have we a love, a passion for Jesus? The hypocritical request. The second thing we see here is the early death in verses 32 to 37. The breaking of the, the legs in verse 32, it made death so much quicker. This is very cruel. Uh, on the cross, what people generally died of on the cross was not the blood pouring out of them. What people died of the cross was suffocation. When people became weak and they couldn't push themselves up on the nails to breathe, they had to push themselves up on the nails to breathe. When people no longer could do that, they would suffocate and die. And the point of breaking the legs is that people no longer could push themselves up on their nails, and then they would die much more quickly. The two thieves, they're still alive, and their legs are broken to speed up their death. But Jesus' legs had not to be broken as He was already dead, and this surprised the soldiers. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, 
they did not break his legs. They were shocked at this. They were shocked that he had died so quickly. And the reason why he had died so quickly was Jesus was not someone holding onto his life. Jesus is someone who was willingly giving up his life. And if we go back to that moment of Jesus' death, look at verse 30. We need to notice something very important there. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And this ties what Jesus previously had said about his death in John 10. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and have authority to take it up. This charge I've received from my Father. The very moment that Jesus died was determined by Jesus. Now, He did something none of us here could do. He decided at that moment to give up His Spirit, to die, to be there no more. And what we see here is that Jesus was not holding on to His life, but Jesus was the willing sacrifice for sin because He knew that He, and through His death, was the only way that sinners like you and I could be saved. Now, the spear comes to him in verse 34. The spear that pierced Jesus' side was to confirm his death. But one of his soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The blood and water that came out Experts have said, and you can talk to some of our doctors or nurses about this, uh, the blood and water that came out either came from the pericardial sac at the heart, or it was fluid from an internal hemorrhage that separated the clear serum at the top and the red serum underneath, and it looked like water and blood. The liquid was like water and blood. And this was clear evidence of his death. Verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. And this is important. This is clear evidence that Jesus did die on the cross because later people would claim that he didn't actually die on the cross. He just somehow, after those six hours on the cross, was just unconscious for a while. And even after spear had been put aside and he'd been in a tomb for a few days, he wasn't totally dead. He got up and came back to life again because he wasn't really dead in the first place. But this proves that that is not true. The water and the blood speaks of truly he was dead. In verse 36 it says, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. And the fact that Jesus hadn't his bones broken like the other two men on the cross, but rather that his side was pierced, fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament. The Passover lamb that was used at the Exodus, one of the requirements was that none of its bones would be broken. Exodus 12 says that, because it's pointing forward to the type of death that Jesus would experience. 
And Psalm 34, verse 20, prophesies about Jesus. It says, He keeps all His bones, not one of them is broken. So, a thousand years before Jesus died on the cross, it is prophesied that His bones were not broken. We said, I don't know, last Sunday morning or evening, how down to the tiniest detail God had everything planned. Now, in regards to the piercing that takes place, John here is quoting from the prophet Zechariah. And the purpose of this prophecy is often seen to remind people that they are guilty of putting Jesus to death, and it's to make them feel uncomfortable or guilty. It says they will look on him whom they have pierced. But it's not the purpose of this prophecy to make anyone feel uncomfortable. Let's look at this prophecy, the two prophecies in Zechariah, again made centuries before Jesus. Zechariah, the Lord says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then a few verses later, it says this in the beginning of chapter 13, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And what Zachariah is talking about is that the, the death of Jesus, the piercing of Jesus, will cause two things. It will cause a great mourning by people over his death, which we see in his followers. And it will open this fountain of cleansing, forgiveness from sin. That's what Jesus' death, Zacharias said all those years before, would achieve. Have you experienced the cleansing that Jesus' death brings? Have you experienced that cleansing so that you are forgiven before God? How do you know that you have been forgiven? How do you know that you have been cleansed through Jesus' death? Well, one way we know is what we see here. You know you're a Christian. You know you've been saved. One sign is you mourn the death of Jesus. For those who have taken communion, you'll understand this. When you come to the Lord's Supper and you're trusting in Jesus, and take that bread which speaks of the broken body, and takes the wine which speaks of the shed blood, there's a mixture of thanksgiving that through the bread and the wine, you're forgiven and cleansed. But there's always a very solemn sense over us at the same time. Why? Because we know it was our sin that caused His death. It was our wickedness that made His sacrifice necessary. Christians, this is the way you'll know you're a Christian or not. 
you mourn your sin, which made it necessary for Jesus to die on the cross. Those who are cleansed, those who are washed, are those who mourn their sin that caused Jesus to die. So we've seen the hypocritical request, we've seen the early death, and then thirdly, we see the courageous love. Look there at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, five stone. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as in the burial custom of the Jews. What we see here is that the fear of man holds many believers back. The fear of man holds many believers back from progressing in their Christian lives and from taking a stand for Jesus. Nelson Mandela once said this, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. And that's what we see in these two men at the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, who was described as a secret believer of Jesus up until now, and Nicodemus the Pharisee who came to Jesus at night, probably because he didn't want the rest of the Jews to see what he was doing. Now they stand for Jesus. Now they overcome their fear of man. They claim the body of Jesus and have it buried. But how did they change? How did they overcome their fear to do the right thing? Well, surely it was the light of Jesus' death that changed them. It was seeing how Jesus died, which was a death of both suffering and victory, that caused them now to be willing to publicly identify with the Lord Jesus. Jesus' death transformed them, not just a death of suffering, but a death that was in control, a death of victory, a death of salvation. I wonder, are you a quiet believer? even a secret believer here today? Are you someone who has come to trust in Jesus, but you've told nobody? I was a Christian for quite a few months before I told anyone that I was a Christian. And then my big sister, being nosy, she challenged me and asked me uh, if I was a Christian, and I had to say yes. I wonder, is that you? If you've come to Christ, you've come to trust in Him as your Savior and Lord, you need to be willing to tell people about it. You need to be willing to stand with Jesus. And often you will not have an assurance of your salvation until you stand before others and say, I have come to trust in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And Jesus deserves that you stand up for him. 
C.T. Studd, great cricketer, then missionary, says this, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for Him. Yes, if you stand up for Jesus, people might mock you at times. People might make fun of you. Yes, if you stand up for Jesus, at times it can be difficult among people that you know. It can be difficult in school. It can be difficult in the workplace. But I can assure you, if you stand up for Jesus, indeed Jesus assures you of this, you will never be the loser because He will pour so much blessing into your life. Isaac Watts puts it this way, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the sacrifice of Jesus demands your soul, your life, your all? Not just in your head do you believe this. Do you believe it in your heart? How are you going to stand up for Jesus this week? How is the cross going to inspire you? Look at verse 42. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they led Jesus there. Like the Jewish leaders, Joseph and Nicodemus were keen to keep the Sabbath and not to break the Sabbath law. And so, because it was coming near dusk and the beginning of the Sabbath, they quickly get Jesus placed in this tomb. Yes, they're like the Jewish leaders in keeping God's law. But their religion is totally, totally different. Because they are exercising their religion with a love and a passion for Jesus in their hearts. Is this you? If it's not you, your only hope is being born again. Your only hope is the Spirit of God entering your soul and changing you and making you new. You don't need religion. That's outward only. You need the religion of the heart. You must be born again. And Christian, if you've been born again, you need to continue to need the Word and the Spirit together to keep firing you up so that your love for Jesus will not be like the church in Ephesus, growing cold. He doesn't deserve a cold religion. He deserves a loving passionate faith from each of us. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank You today for the death of the Lord Jesus. We want to thank You today, Father, that He willingly gave up His life. He willingly died and shed His blood and was pierced to open up a fountain through which we could be cleansed. Oh, Father, grant that we would know that we're born again today, 
that we have true religion, that we love Jesus, we trust in Jesus. We follow Jesus not with mere outward duty, but because we have hearts which truly love Him. Yes, Father, we do mourn how we don't love Him more. We do mourn how we're not more committed. But Lord, give us the grace that we need. Father, to have a religion that is real inside, that loves to worship, that loves to study Your Word, that loves to pray, that loves to witness, that loves holiness, and which mourns the sin that took Jesus to the cross. In His name we pray. Amen.